It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. We have a great guest for you today, a young artist and writer called Florence Given, who you might remember had a book of feminist writing called Women Don't Owe You Pretty a couple of years ago and who has just released her first novel, Girl Crush, which delves into the darker side of social media. You start to wonder what part of you is writing these posts, what part of you is creating these these. Um, things and how much of it's you and how much of it is something that is responding to what people want and need and I think that what is interesting to me now whether you have 200 followers 200,000 2 million everyone now has to consider what they want to share with the world First, congratulations to the Ireland women's soccer team. A fantastic victory last week over Finland. And what a story. And we might even end up in the World Cup. Can you imagine it? And speaking of football, congratulations to England soccer star, footballer Kira Walsh, who has joined FC Barcelona, becoming the world's most expensive women's footballer. She joins the Spanish giants for 350,000 English quid, breaking Chelsea's prior record signing by 100,000. Kira Walsh was born and raised in Rochdale in the UK, but with a name like Walsh, surely we can claim her a little bit. It really is a golden time for women's soccer and it's great to see it. Now, Florence Given is a Sunday Times best-selling, record-breaking author and an award-winning influencer. With the launch of her debut book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, in 2020, Florence became the youngest author to hold a position in the top five of the Sunday Times bestseller list for a consecutive 12 weeks in a row. By November 2020, the book had sold over 100,000 copies and been acquired for translation into 11 languages. Florence's work confronts oppressive attitudes towards women and their bodies and she uses her platform to raise awareness of issues surrounding sexuality, consent, race and gender. And in 2018, Florence launched a petition to cancel Netflix's controversial fat shaming series Insatiable, which got 300,000 signatures in a matter of days. She came on to talk to us about her very interesting young life and about Girl Crush, her first novel, a dark feminist retelling of Jekyll and Hyde. I began by asking Florence to tell those listeners who might not be familiar with her work a little bit about herself. Yeah, I grew up in Plymouth. Um, so I'm, first of all, I'm 23 years old. I moved to London maybe four or five years ago. I studied at art college in Plymouth where I was doing fa- a fashion BTEC. And I found my voice through my illustrations. I'd been drawing naked women and posting them uh, online since I was about 16 years old. But I'd been introduced to illustration via my art teacher, Mr. Varrell, who... Um, let me draw naked women for my art GCSE. I was completely uh, enamoured by naked women and I didn't know what that meant at the time. I was just um, drawing them, obsessed with them. I thought for art GCSE, you had to do things like paint roses and paint Georgia O'Keeffe and paint cityscapes and landscapes because that's what we were taught how to do. And then, you know, for your GCSE art brief, you could do what you wanted. And I picked up this fashion illustration book, fell in love with the colours and the way that women were being portrayed by women in this book. And I think it was kind of a, not a conscious introduction to feminism, but I loved the way that women were depicted by other women in art. And so I started to draw them. Then I went to art college and started to infuse my illustrations with my political message, which again, at the time, didn't think it was political. It was very um, focused on sexual harassment. I turned 18 and I was going on nights out in Plymouth for the first time and experiencing groping and just weird remarks from men that all of my friends were totally used to that just completely blew my mind that anyone could find that normal and something that was just a part of being a woman. 
And I felt crazy. I felt crazy for being the only person who had already had enough of it within a month of being able to go out. And I felt crazy because no one else around, everyone was putting up with it, right? So I started to put it into my illustrations. And if you scroll down to the bottom of my Instagram, you can see my early drawings. They're not very good, but they're just full of passion and colour. And still kind of, you can tell it's my style uh, of illustration still. And I was just very angry. And I took took to the internet to talk about those experiences and suddenly it just snowballed. Lots of women were um, saying, you know, literally me too. I've been through this. Um, this pisses me off. None of my friends talk about it. And then I started to do exhibitions in London. I would send my work out to loads of galleries. Uh, my first exhibition was on a piece of string that they gave me. They, the, 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 the exhibition was full. And I was like, no, make room for me. I literally, I was like, make room for me. And I will come up from Plymouth on a mega bus for seven hours and I, they gave me a piece of string on the wall and I hung my little illustrations on it. And I, I really wanted to be heard. I really wanted to connect with other people who th- felt and thought the same way as me. Um, and then my illustrations uh, turned into my book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, where I paired them with short essays that were kind of an extension of what I was doing online anyway. And uh, that was my first book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty. And I've recently finished publishing, just published my uh, first novel, Girl Crush, which is now a number one Sunday Times bestseller, which is just so overwhelming. Um, I've, it was literally two weeks ago that I published it. And uh, it's just another avenue for storytelling for me. I love bringing people joy. I like making people think with my work. I love women. I want to make the world a better place for women. I know I can't do that all on my own. So that's why I want to empower other people to give them the tools to do things like this as well. So we can all just kind of rally together. Thank you so much. That is an absolutely brilliant introduction. I think everybody now knows Florence Kiffin a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're very good at answering that question. Um, and I just wanted to unpick a little bit something you said there, because I'm fascinated by this. I'm 50, right? So I'm almost twice your age. You're 23. And I remember, and I'm talking, I'm going back now, maybe 35 years. I remember being out on those nights out, like you just described, and things like that happening, okay? And, and, and me at the time being so angry and annoyed and trying to and and fighting back against these people and and like in some cases I got physical with men who did that like and but I was very much on my own it's really depressing to me wow. I have to say that you at 18 5 yeah. years ago we're still getting that sort of almost like it seems like your peers were like, oh, Florence, that's just what you have to put up with when mm. you're on a night out. It's normal. It's, isn't it really interesting, though, that something that I experienced like 30 years ago that I I was a weirdo then for for speaking up against. Mm. And and all those years later, you were still a weirdo for speaking up against it. It makes me feel very depressed that we haven't come very far. Yes, Rasheen. Yes, I think um, the thing with that is that I'm now so lost in my feminist bubble that I think everyone around me reflects those beliefs now. So because I live in London and uh, it's a lot more progressive here, you know, in in most areas in London, and even online, I feel like online world is such a mirage because it's not the real world. That's one of the themes in Girl Crush is about how that can become so fucking blurred. Sorry, can I swear on this podcast? You can totally swear, Florence. Okay, um, it, on the online world, it's just so fucking blurred and you don't know where it, it ends, where you begin, where it starts, where it stops. Um, and I think that for a while I've been kind of convinced that uh, surely people still don't think like that. And then you're like, oh God, they really do. I've just surrounded myself with a lot of wonderful people who reflect my values. Um, and also the internet does that for you because it's, it's based on algorithm. It shows you what you want to see. And then you get to this, you know, this complete opposite side of the internet where people are still talking about how women deserve to be sexually assaulted for the clothes that they wear. Um, and we've seen men recently become very empowered figures by other men um, because of how they feel. And, and it's just it's just so contrasting to uh, my belief system that it, it still does shock me. And then I'm and then I'm annoyed that I'm shocked because fucking of course it's still this way. And I think that's interesting that you said that was so long ago for you. And still it's the experience. I do think it's more prominent in small towns though. So I was I was in Plymouth and I think it was, I don't know, something about living in a small town and then staying in a small town encourages you to just adopt what, what has already been going on there instead of 
uh, innovating and making something new. I think that's just kind of like small town mentality. And then people go to the big city to do big ideas. But I would love to see more big ideas in small towns. Big ideas in small towns. I like it. Yeah. That's, that's brilliant. <laughs> so listen, let's go back to, um, actually before Women Don't Know You Pretty, because another thing that brought you to a lot of people's attention was this petition that you started against um, that Netflix programme, Insatiable. Tell yes. us about that, because I think for a lot of people, that's when they would have first heard of you because you were working away in your art and posting things on Instagram. But this kind of put you on another level. So tell us about that bit of your trajectory. Yeah, so um, it was um, I was in my uni halls at, at like a tiny little shoebox room and I was posting my illustrations online and stuff. And it was already gaining a lot of traction. And then um, I had an audience and my friend sent me um, the trailer to this uh, Netflix show uh, that was, it was really fat phobic. They put a thin woman in a fat suit and the whole premise was that she's liked more by the boys and her friends when she loses weight. And my friend, who is a plus size girl, couldn't believe that something was being published and commissioned like this in this day and age, whatever. Um, And I was like, I'll do something so that people can put their name to it. And um, she can feel like there's something being done about it. I can feel like there's something. Every time I learn something, it's like, at least back then anyway, I wanted to do something quickly about it. Um, now, I, now I definitely take a beat and I, and I think about things and I am a lot more reflective. And what's the most effective way to do this? Blah, 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 blah. But I was just so enraged. Um, and I, yeah, I went online and I made the petition just so people could put their name to it to be like, I don't agree with this because it was just going and it was just happening. Um, and then that got a lot of traction uh completely by surprise because a lot of people were angry about it um yeah I think it's still on Netflix did anything happen yeah it is because it got over 300,000 signatures which is incredible yeah yeah it, it, it was wild and um but my opinion on that and how I did that has just changed entirely um I think there are other ways to go about um if you don't like someone's I think it is it was an awful awful show and even when it came out it turned out it was worse and there was transphobia in it and all this kind of stuff um but I think sometimes people just make shit out of touch art and I'm not saying that we should I don't think I still don't believe that we should be commissioning this stuff um but I was 18 and angry on the internet (laughs) and I think that there are um well maybe they wouldn't have listened that I, my, my mind just changes constantly about how to handle public outcries because I think sometimes they can work. Sometimes they can be more damaging when it comes to corporations and big like politicians. They're never going to hear you unless there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people uh, screaming about something. If it's just a few nice, politely written letters, no one's going to fucking listen. Um, so, yeah, it, it is what it is. And uh, I think it did raise awareness about a lot of issues. Partic- I just still can't believe that we were using fat suits in 2018 or whenever it was. Yeah. I know. Again, it's that depressing thing that you think things have changed and you realise actually not so much, you know, um, and, with that, and that how vigilant we have to continue to be. Tell us about um, Women Don't Owe You Pretty because it was a record-breaking bestseller. It was a it was a series of sort of essays, I suppose, and uh, exploring all the different themes that had been enraging you and getting you, uh, you were so passionate about. So tell us what you wanted to do with that book. Yeah, it was, the book was already inside me. So it was really not easy to write, but the steps were all laid out for me because... It was everything inside of me already. It wasn't like I was, um, with Girl Crush, my fiction book, I was creating and writing a story and it changed every day. But when it came to Women Don't Know You Pretty, it was everything I was putting on my Instagram. It was everything that I wanted to tell a younger version of Floss. So when I wrote the actual introduction to Women Don't Know You Pretty, is a letter between me and my younger self. And one of the parts that I wrote in the introduction is that I learnt sooner how to have boundaries with food sooner than I learned how to have boundaries with other people. And when I realised that in some therapy session some years ago, um, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait, 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 wait. This, is, this isn't even some kind of, um, like, I'm not even being vague about this. I literally was taught sooner how to say no to food than anyone had taught me to say no to men, than anyone had taught me to say no to uh unwanted advances I was taught to control my body to be desirable instead of respected and that's what the title women don't owe you pretty is all about that it's all about control it's all about image and um 
a book that has inspired me entirely is The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf. When I read that, I was the person in the smoking area on a night out, ramming it like verbally down people's throats, like, you need to be reading this book. Um, so yeah, with Women Don't Know You Pretty, I just wanted to tell... The, the, the initial intention with it was to say everything that I was telling my friends in my life that was I was watching it change their mindsets quickly into a book because I wanted to do it on a mass scale. I've once or twice wanted to be a therapist because I've seen um, how good it feels to just gently hold the mirror up to people and watch them go, oh my God, you're right, this, da, da, da. Just giving people the tools to do it themselves. It's not me that's changed. People are changing their own lives. And then putting those tools into a book so it could be with a mass amount of people just felt like the most obvious thing to me and the most important thing that I always want to do with my work is make it accessible so women don't owe you pretty is about feminism it is about boundaries it's about race gender all of this stuff that we're now is in general public lexicon um because of the news and, and big movements and stuff um it shouldn't be intimidating to talk about this stuff it's hard it's fucking hard, but it doesn't need to be intimidating. And I don't think you need a degree in gender studies to talk about the male gaze. I don't think you need a degree in gender studies to realise how patriarchy affects you and how privilege benefits you. I don't think that this is stuff that should be gatekept. And putting it in a book that looks pretty and is engaging and, and is short and accessible in these bite-sized pieces means that it's for everyone. And I think that so many women who... Um, didn't go to uni, didn't even go to school, or and are in shit abusive relationships, they deserve access to this fucking language as well. And I've had um, women who have gone to Tesco, just mums on their shop run, have seen my book in Tesco, because it's sold there now, they've bought it because it looked pretty for their coffee table, and they've come out the other end, not shaving their body hair, and divorcing their abusive husbands. And that is, they deserve empowerment like, as well. And I, I think if, if, if the book was called something like Feminism 101 and it was written in black and white, those kinds of people who maybe don't consider themselves feminists would never get access to this life-changing, basic advice that women are gatekept from because the whole point of gatekeeping empowerment from women is so that we're more easy to control and sell products to. So that is so interesting, Florence. And I'm going to call you Floss as well, if that's okay, because I know that's your, that's your kind of nickname and you mentioned yourself there earlier as that. Um, but it, it's so interesting what you say there, because in some ways, if people were to maybe look at what you're doing and maybe other young women today talking about feminism, they might say, these are just ideas that have been around for a long time. You know, yeah. what's so great about these people, the way they're disseminating it. But I think you put your finger on it there. First of all, that we have to keep talking about it, that you can't just do it once and not talk about it again, but also that you need to do it in a way that is accessible, that's mainstream, that reaches people that maybe aren't studying this in college or aren't mm-hmm. uh, finding these messages at home or through their bookshelves in their in their family home or whatever else it is, the way a lot of us have. Um, so there's a kind of a democratic feel to what you're trying to achieve. It's like a Trojan horse. It's like you have to sugar the pill a bit and I think that, and that doesn't mean changing the quality of the arguments or watering it down. If that means writing a book that's fucking pink and makes the girlies want to read it, then that's what I'll do, you know? Yeah. And I think that um, there's nothing wrong with that. And that this is stuff that has been around for so long and we need to keep updating it. If only to reflect the rate at which dating is happening now and the ways that uh, romantic and relationship abuse are evolving with the digital age and how these things differ and how even now that people have a grip on this lexicon of emotional abuse, it can now even be weaponized against us. I have people writing into me saying, Floss, I've, I've got this housemate and I'm a bit confused because she's read your book and she's told me that I'm not allowed in the living room because that's her, quote, boundary. So she was like, is she right? No, this person is weaponizing this like psychological. So even the ways that people are hurting and controlling each other now are sophisticated. And I think that that also needs to be spoken about. So I just think that, you know, I want someone to read Women Don't Are You Pretty in 10 years time and go, right, I'm going to update this. Pass the baton on. Write another version of Women Don't Are You Pretty. Write another version in 30 years. I might fucking do it. Who knows? Like, I just think this, that it needs to be updated and the more that people get their hands stuck in the better 
And is there snobbery around that? Is it, is it like only certain people sh- should talk about this stuff, you know, and you have no. to have a degree? No. You, you, yeah. And I don't, I don't think you need to, but that's the whole point, like I said, the whole point of my book is you don't need to have done X, Y, and Z. And I don't, I don't like, I don't like the snobbery or the, or the gatekeeping around this stuff because it's, it's like people can get so uh, into it that they end up actually just, again, being quite classist and ableist. Like, well, you can't be this because you're saying this word wrong and da 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 da. People only know what they fucking know. Like, I'm so much more lenient now when I hear someone say a bad word. I'm not like, oh, you're the devil incarnate. That's outdated language. I'm a lot more like, did you know that, like, if I said that word on social media, I'd probably lose my job? Like, that's how, you know? I think there's so many ways that you can um, approach people with... They don't know what they don't know. And, like, how can you punish someone for not knowing what they don't know? And if it's harming you, you know, that doesn't mean you excuse the harm that people are causing you. Um, I I, I expect that people have this with their parents when they grow up and they realise... That was emotional abuse. Oh my goodness me. But everyone was doing that. So what the fuck does that mean? And it's just like, there's there's a new normal every 10, 20 years with every generation or whatever. And I think uh, a lot more compassion is needed. That's also why um, I wanted to start my podcast, exactly. because uh, the, podca- the podcast is called Exactly. <laughs> um, because I wanted to have conversations with people and I feel that they were conversations that couldn't take place on social media where a lot of nuance is often lost. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And speaking of your podcast, because just that you mentioned it, I listened to one with Jamila Jamil and I found that a fascinating conversation because you're someone who who has been um, described as with this terrible phrase in a way, the voice of I a generation. Know what you're say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there's lots of things I could say, but that's the one I yeah. picked out. The voice of a generation. And it's so I mean, I was listening to you talking to Jamila Jamil about this and it's something that has occurred to me before and I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in real time where we decide somebody is. And I've been in, in Ireland, Sally Rooney, in a way, in a different yes. kind of way, has had that tag as well. So what we do is we like to put them up in these impossible standards and tell them they're amazing and that they now need to speak for everybody. And then when you they don't live up to what we want them to do, there's a very, uh, you know, there's almost like a template or a pattern of how then we, we work to dismantle that person and to tear them down and to just stamp on them and make them feel like hey how did you ever dare think we were going to leave you up there as the voice of the generation yeah meanwhile the woman never asked to be there people just wrote write the headlines for you and so you're like i've i've i I, yeah it 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 has happened to me a few times and the irony was it's happened to me after publishing girl crush in which i speak about the phenomenon with the themes in the novel um and then it happened to me and i was like oh fuck this is horrible um yeah i think what's interesting is that women have no control no one any regardless of your gender you don't have control over the headlines unless you're like literally paying the i don't that doesn't even happen like you don't have control over headlines that are written about you and so there's a lot of uh trust and then lack of trust when people say things or misquote or whatever um and yeah, I've never seen a man be called the voice of a generation. Like we, we, we call someone the voice of a generation every week and it's, it's always a woman. And it's something I don't want to be the voice of a generation. I just want to write books that make people think. That's literally all I want to do. And then what happens is when you're called something like 
the voice of a generation. Obviously, that th- th- there's some form of compliment in it. It's that what I hear people are trying to say is, oh, this person has a really good way of articulating what quite a few women of a similar age are thinking. That's all I hear. Um, but what the title of voice of a generation does is it inevitably pisses the whole generation off. Half of them are like, who the fuck is Florence Given? And then the other half are like, no, she's not the voice of... Like, like I would, if I saw someone being called the voice of a generation, I'd be like, what? How can you even... And then what, what happens is the person who has been called the voice of a generation doesn't think that themselves. But because it's next to a picture of you, it looks like you think that. And that's what Jamila talks about in my podcast episode. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting phenomena. And I just think it, it's, very, it's a very silly thing to do to anyone. Yeah, it is. I mean, just going back to the feminism, and we'll get on to Girl Crush now in a second because I'm dying to talk to you about it. Um, there is, it's a crowded space and nobody has a monopoly on the, these ideas, I think is what you've said before. I mean, why do you think your stuff resonates and maybe other people's don't? How do you view how you have become this very marketable kind of person that people seem to be... Well, on one side, I, I've seen a lot of people being quite nasty about you online, which we could talk about too because it happens to everybody. But on the other hand, you are kind of put up there as as this voice. Wh- who decides and how does that happen? I'm not sure who decides or how it happens. I think a lot of factors have to do with um, sometimes... And again, Jamila literally said this in my in the episode. She was like, sometimes people just don't like your hair. And they're like, she's annoying. She's annoying. I don't know why, blah, blah, blah. And then she also said that we try and pick our leaders, um, which is an interesting thing. So... <clears throat> Yes, people have been nasty about me online, but art is subjective. I know that whatever I do, as long as I'm saying something that's an opinion, if I said nothing and I was just pretty, no one would hate me because it's not threatening. Pretty isn't threatening. But saying things puts you in that line for people to be able to uh, say things. And there's nothing wrong with not voicing your opinions online. Um, I totally understand why people don't do that because of you see what happens to people who do speak up and speak their opinions Jamila said something amazing about how um female silence is rewarded essentially um so yeah I'm I'm like I totally expect it for the rest of my life to be um critiqued and ridiculed and judged and um have people it's so funny when people think make things up about you online you're reading you're like wow that's so interesting didn't didn't know I want to hear more what what's this person doing now what's this Florence Given doing now and you read all this stuff and it comes from like thin air and it's it's interesting and it's um it's a very wild the internet is the wild west and that's something that is always going to come with the territory but I will still choose to make art and I want to be some kind of example, whether people like what I'm making or not, of a woman who refuses to stop being a fucking artist just because people don't like your art sometimes. Because that is essentially what's always going to happen. And if everyone likes you also, you're not doing anything. You're, you're, you're not doing anything that's interesting if everyone likes you. And that doesn't mean actively trying to provoke and piss people off. I, I literally could never do that. The thought of doing that frightens me to death. Um... But if you're not doing anything new, that uh, if everyone likes it, it means you're not, there's no kind of like innovation or there's nothing new. I don't know. And to go back to your question of like, who gets to decide, I don't know, I'm 23. I just started putting my stuff on the internet four years ago, sent just because of the, the rapid acceleration of my success doesn't mean I'm still used to this job. You know, I'm still figuring it all out. I still don't know what I'm doing. I'm just making art, putting it out there um, because I refuse to stop making art. Okay, I love it. Um, So tell me about Girl Crush, your debut fiction novel. And I know that you really enjoyed the process of doing something that was fiction. Yes, I did. Um, So what was it like writing your first fiction out? Yeah, it was lovely. Um, It was horrible at some some parts as well. Um, and my editor said that so that there were some weeks but there are some themes in the novel um to do with sexual assault and to do with all of this stuff and I almost bowed out of writing it because I'm normally such a joyful person I can talk about sexual assault statistically but going into a character and then having to talk about those feelings it was horrible and I, I would I would come home from writing a day in a cafe 
and have to say to my assistant from like my home office, like, I can't talk right now because Earth is going through something and I'm also going through it with her right now. <laughs> um, so, just quickly tell us about the, the protagonist, Eartha, because people might not have read it yet. So Yeah, so yeah, Girl Crush is a novel that's essentially split in two. It's a dark feminist retelling of Jekyll and Hyde, where in the second half of the novel, you're not really sure if she's telling the truth, who in the novel is real. Uh, in the first half, Eartha is living a very unsatisfied life everything's kind of pissing her off. She's got the ick with the relationship. Um, And then she goes viral on a social media app called Wonderland by posting a drunk video. And she's approached by a woman who promises her the life of her dreams. And everything seems like it's going on the on and up. Everything's really exciting. And then something happens that she must keep a secret. And the second half of the novel, you're kind of spent picking up the pieces with her. And I really wanted to uh, write something that at the end you might have to go back almost collecting receipts and parts just like Arthur was doing herself in the novel um that was really exciting for me it was really uh challenging and new but the first the first half of the novel was my first my favorite part to write um and I actually didn't start on chapter one I started right in the middle of chaos uh on chapter four because I was too scared to write a bad first sentence for my novel. <laughs> so I was like, there's no way I'm starting. Because when you look at writing a book, the, the novel is 100,000 words long. But originally, it was I, my, the manuscript I handed in to my editor was 160. So she had to cut all of it down. And I was like crying. I was like, why are you doing this to my book? You're cutting so much out. But then it ended up, you know, being for the better. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a really fun process because I could create things and I love creating things. And I didn't know that this could ever be an extension of what I was already doing again, because I, I didn't go to university to study English literature. I didn't do any of that stuff. Um, and it was just the, um, Julia Cameron who wrote The Artist's Way. She talks about believing mirrors And I literally interviewed her last night for my podcast and I had a really good chat with her. And she said this thing about believing mirrors, having people around you who reflect that belief back and don't kind of crush it with doubt. And that's my, the amazing women in my life who, when I said to my book agent, I want to try fiction for my next book, which was quite a bold move because my nonfiction was what was doing really well. And then, um, she was like, okay, write something and show me. <laughs> and then it was having those people that liked what I was doing and reflecting that belief in me that kind of gave me the courage to write the damn thing. So so Earth is the main character. She becomes this massive influencer and then things take a dark turn. But she has a best friend who's a non-binary Irish person. Yes. Tell us about Rose, because that was probably the first, I think one of the first novels I've read with with a non-binary person. And, you know, the pronouns are there, they and all that. And you kind of get uh-huh. used to it very quickly. Which So I think it's it's really, it's great. Tell us about Rose and how you came up with her. Yeah, with so, them. You see, yeah. I'm always, <laughs> I mis- so, misgendered her. So um, Rose is, yeah, Rose is non-binary. They are Arthur's best friend in the novel. And Rose is this kind of sane character in the book that's always pulling Arthur back to herself, or at least trying to, when she's being led astray. Rose is also Arthur's queer guide when she comes out um, and she explores uh, Olympia, which is the fictional town that I made up for the novel. And Rose is this... uh, this kind, compassionate, like the friend everyone wants in their life. Um, and yet with Rose being non-binary, I want, I didn't want to intro them as um, having this massive coming out moment or even being spoken about. I just wanted a way. The way that I learned to use they, them pronouns was by being thrown in at the deep end and then having a friend come out as non-binary and then having no choice but to really quickly learn how to do it. And I was like, I want to do that with this novel by just putting the pronouns in there. And then as you read it, you're like, oh, this is easy. I could probably do this in real life. Um, I was originally going to give Rose uh, a coming out moment. Um, and then I was like, no, I don't want it to be this big thing. And then so wrote, rewrote the pronouns from the beginning. There's so many things that changed um, with the book. But yeah, essentially Rose is this queer guide to Arthur throughout the book. And they're just 
the centre, I think, and the, and the voice of reason and the voice of sanity and the friend that a lot of people, especially queer people, like wish they had when they came And out. they are also Irish. How did you yes, decide on are. that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was, when I was creating Rose's character, I was like, I want them to be so charming. I want them to be so attractive. This, this kind of um, non-binary lesbian who is turning heads and, and that that's that's one of Rose's uh like toxic traits is that they don't really care emotionally about the people that they're dating. They're a bit of like a fuck boy when it comes to dating. Um because they could not Rose could not be entirely perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But she's uh, they're they're Irish and so do you have many Irish friends yourself? No, I don't. No. I just I just I just love the accent and I was like Rose would definitely be Irish. <laughs> <laughs> and what did it feel like moving into fiction then? Because as you said, you were non-fiction, you were writing about feminism, you were in that kind of essay space. Did it feel like you've more freedom? Because in some ways, because it explores this, the whole world of social media with Wonderland, this um, whole world that you created uh, and the dark side of it. And this idea of, you mentioned it earlier, who people are online versus who they are in real life. And I'm sure that these are all themes and issues that you've been grappling with as someone who has become very successful online. I mean, you've got over, how many followers on Instagram do you have now? Um, Like 590 something. Thousand. Thousand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah not the 590. That We wouldn't probably be talking to you in fairness. No yeah. disrespect. But, um, you know, you've got this huge following, which um, in the book, you can see Eartha's uh, follower count go up and up and up as, as her kind of uh, star rises. And then you can see it fall again as well when things go wrong. Did you want to look at that because it's something that you yourself are kind of grappling with? I wanted to look at it because it's something that everyone is grappling with. So I I have friends who don't have a as big an audience as me, but they're suddenly going viral on TikTok. TikTok is now a part of most of the people my age's life. They will just upload something, wake up the next morning with 10,000 new followers, and they're all asking me, Floss, how the fuck do you handle this? This is insane. Um, people have now seen me inside of my bedroom. I just uploaded it. And oh my God, this feels great, but also I feel really scared and blah, blah, blah. And I think that fame is becoming increasingly accessible and I wanted to write a book um I can I can talk about the industry I've written what I know and that is the industry and um internet fame and it's it's such a wild thing that I think everyone's going to have it you know like um a little bit Andy Warhol said everyone's gonna have their 50 minutes everyone's having it now and at such a rapid pace to the point where also it has um not cheapened, diluted what fame is worth and not in a good way or a bad way. I think that we're now having more intimacy with our idols because of what they share online. So suddenly you can log on and see uh, what the latest A-list celebrities are having for breakfast. That's wild. You would have had like a paparazzi try and get that photo through the window in like the 90s, you know? So I think that I wanted to write about this stuff because it's happening to people at such a rapid pace. And... Um, yeah, kind of talk about the darker side of it, the incentivization as well. And I just put the whole thing of what's happening to everyone on steroids. You start to wonder what part of you is writing these posts, what part of you is creating these these um, things and how much of it's you and how much of it is something that is responding to what people want and need. And I think that what is interesting to me now, whether you have 200 followers, 200,000, 2 million Everyone now has to consider what they want to share with the world. Personally, I've become very private. And it's this, it's this, um, this strange thing where people think I'm so open about my life because I'm, I'm an open person when it comes to my experiences and what, what, what I have been through. But when it comes to privacy, friendship, dating, um, my, my current situation, what my next projects, I keep everything so quiet. Um, and that is, I have a list of things that I have told myself will always be mine um, and not for the internet because you need those things that are non-negotiable because then they become, they belong to the world and not yourself. And I think that everyone's, everyone's going to have to deal with that. Whether it's not posting a picture in, in front of your window because there's a recognisable building in the background and there's a man who's stalking you on Instagram who would love to take that opportunity to harm you, stalk you, harass you, whatever. You don't need millions of followers to have to deal with that kind of stuff. Um, 
And I think it, it, the conversation, there's so, I discussed a lot of themes in Girl Crush. Um, I wrote about a lot of themes in the novel and I, yeah, I, a lot. There's, there, there's queerness, there's having gay sex for the first time. Um, and what was really fun was nothing in the novel has happened to me, but the feelings of um, having, having sex for the first time, going on a date for the first time, um, rising to internet fame, all of that kind of stuff is it was so interesting to be able to like rewrite all of these things and create these scenes and yeah it was really really overwhelming process earth's viral moment as you sort of described is her kind of coming out as bisexual and she makes this video and it goes she she goes to bed drunk and then she wakes up and yes. she's suddenly got all these new followers you are bisexual as well and you've talked mm-hmm. about that and you're very open about that has that been i think is it easier these days i mean you know everybody now who has um teenage kids or are are hearing about um people in their class who are non-binary, you know, we're getting used to the pronouns. Um, and so is it a lot easier now for, for someone like you to decide or, you know, realising their sexuality and talking about it? I think it's contextual. And again, a question like that is is almost like one of those, um, I, I can't speak for everyone. So my... But you're the voice of I, a generation for I'm, us. I am. <laughs> I can't, a question like that. I'm not in school classrooms. I'm not in school classrooms. I don't know what it's like in school classrooms now. I could say, well, yeah, it's on the on and up because statistically, blah, 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 blah. But there's some kids still being called the F-A-G word uh, by his peers and being harangued at school for it, you know? So I think, I I know people personally who can't come out to their parents because their parents won't support them. Um, I know people, even when it comes to PDA and stuff in public for showing... uh, queer displays of affection I always think about where I'm going on holiday and if that will be appropriate uh, if I'm with someone there there's lots of things that queer people still have to uh, think about also class privilege can protect people even when it comes to like um being harassed and stuff um having class privilege of like being able to afford ubers being able to afford taxis and all but then even in the taxi you can still be harassed I know people who've been harassed by the uber drivers because they're gay um I've been kicked out of an uber because I went in with the woman and the driver you know so there's you can't really escape it um I do think it is getting better I'm not going to sit here and paint a pessimistic picture of it but um it still exists and we still need as much visibility as possible I read a book a couple years ago called Bad Dyke and it, that's what inspired me to write Girl Crush. It was about this big... Oh, no one on the podcast can see. It's about 100 pages uh, long. It's called Bad Dyke by Alison Moon. And it's this funny, queer, dark novel. Um, and it just made me laugh. And it turned me on. And it got me really excited. And I was like, I want to do something like this. I want to do storytelling like this. And I wanted to bring the characters in my illustrations to life. And see that representation... She doesn't know this. I should probably reach out and tell her this. But that seeing that representation and seeing a queer woman write a story that was so filthily honest and funny made me want to do that as well. And that's all I want to do with my work as well, is give people a little permission slip. I think that all people are looking for is a permission slip to be themselves, whether that comes from me because someone who looks like me thinks, oh my God, she's doing this, I could do this. Or, oh, she didn't go to uni. I'll write a fucking novel as well. Like, I want people to see themselves. And I don't think you can be yourself until you see an example of it. Um, And if you don't see an example of it and you still think you can do it, gorgeous it requires a little bit of delusion I've definitely had to be a bit delusional uh, in terms of thinking I can do things and when I say delusional I don't mean like um being like wildly inappropriate or out of control mentally I mean to believe that you can to believe that something doesn't exist and think that you were the person to birth it into existence and that you can make it happen requires delusion just imagine what people who um I just I think I think we need more delusional people and more troublemakers. Imagine like what people thought of people. This is completely out of context now, and I'm not comparing myself to these people. But imagine if the people who were riding like horse and carriages and riding bikes um, thought of the person who wanted to invent a plane. You know, like th- people would have called that person crazy. Uh, but they innovated it. And I think we need more people innovating and being a little bit delusional. I want to be more delusional with <laughs> what I can imagine the world to be, you know? I think that we're often taught, no, that's never going to happen. No, that's never going to happen. 
Um, but you can do things. You can do like you can do massive things. You can imagine our entire society was imagined by a person. Like you can imagine things, create them, and bring them into existence. Can we talk a little bit about your aesthetic? Because um, you're here today with you know you don't have your hair all done the way you sometimes normally mm-hmm. do in your makeup, but you've got this beautiful seventies vibe in the stuff you have in your house and your clothes and your Farrah Fawcett type hair when you have it like that. Uh, where did that come from, and why do you love that so much? I don't know. It's very innate and very intuitive. So my mum didn't dress like that growing up. Um, But what my mum did have in the house was leopard print sofas, which I'm currently sat on right now. Not the exact one, but very similar. Leopard print sofas, uh, very Bieber, 1920s aesthetic I grew up with, like pink uh, velvet wallpaper and lampshades and cushions and naked women on the walls. It just, it all makes sense now, you know? Um, but <laughs> I, um, the 70s, like probably music taste. I love 70s music. I love 70s fashion, aesthetics, art, culture. It also represents, like in the 70s, it was like the, the re- love revolution. And there was, so, I don't know if that's even uh, consciously why, just something about that era sets my soul on fire and I can't ever see myself shaking it off entirely <laughs> and my uh, my wardrobe kind of flits between like 70s dad and also his wife's wardrobe like I want them both so I want I want to be wearing my cool yellow pointel collar shirts with a tie and some platforms and I also want to be wearing a silly little frolicky dress with my Farrah Fawcett hair um th- th- that's my kind of blend of aesthetics I like to go with yeah and it, it, that's with my illustrations as well that I infuse it in. yeah your illustrations are gorgeous and we should say that they're all available online to buy um oh, which you. has been a very <laughs> uh, good uh sort of line for you I mean you've got so much going on the podcast the novel your your other non-fiction book and I know you said that I like to keep things some things private but what are you doing next can you tell us about any of your future projects that you're working on so, Come on. No, <laughs> but like long term, I want to get into fashion. Long term, I want to um, I, like I want to come rather I want to come back to fashion because that's what I moved to London to do. And then my, all of this other stuff was on the side that I was really passionate about. And I was just passionate about a lot of things. And the fashion I've the fashion styling and designing element I've let go of. So I'd like to revisit fashion um, and come back to that. I would also like to open a physical space. I would like to open a cafe that's not specifically for queer people and women, but you know that that's where you can go to meet queer people and women because I'm the host of it. So um, I would like to open physical spaces to bring people together. um, And I want to write books for the rest of my life. And I just want to become an even better writer. I can't wait to see what I'm going to be doing in 10 years. I don't know what it is, but I I can't wait. (laughs) I can't wait either. Before you go, could you, and there'll be lots of people listening uh, like me who have um, young sort of girls I have two daughters and you know this just started secondary school and uh, I'm not I'm not expecting you to have all the answers but I, I'm we're, <laughs> we're grappling with for our children this online world because um you know worried about how much time they spend on their phones worried about TikTok and Instagram and and what they're doing there and who they're talking to and have you any advice for us people who are you know wondering how strict to be or not strict or how do we talk to our particularly our daughters about these things? Yeah, I also, I'm 23, I don't know if I want kids yet, but I've been thinking, me and my friends talk about it and we're like, God, I cannot actually imagine that dilemma. It's the same dilemma I have with um, uh, policing my imaginary future daughter's clothing, knowing that the world is shit and that men are assholes on the street and absolutely will be sexualizing her and then wanting her to be her own fucking person and completely express herself. But God, men are horrible and I love you and I want you to be safe. That's the same kind of dilemma I see here is you want your children to be expressing themselves online. You want them to be doing all of this stuff. You want them to be engaging with the world and learning about this. But also, could the world be reflecting back to them some really damaging messages? So I'm right there with you and not knowing what to do. Um, But when it comes to advice, probably the only thing I would say is open communication with it. So being curious maybe about what your child is watching online and asking them non-judgmental questions about it and I think the more you know and the more that you have that door that that pathway of communication the more they'll be honest with you if they feel uncomfortable with something it's like parenting one-on-one right so and you probably already know that and I think that it's just talking to them um I wouldn't even know how to regulate like 
I wouldn't even know what that looks like, like telling a child about what to use online and what not to use. Um, I suppose I was asking you because you spend and you have and your your career and your life has been so much through that that yes. um, you it's been very positive for you in many ways. And I know you've had difficulties as well and challenges around it, but uh, you seem to have come out in a way and okay. been able to, do you know, that's where yeah, okay. I sort of was interested in. Okay, so resilience. It's it's about building building resilience. I would not, it's just keeping on going. Um, I, I think perhaps my uh, experience with the internet has been different because I have used it professionally. So um, when it comes to critique or judgment and stuff there's it's just experiencing what artists have experienced for decades on steroids you're not meant to know what thousands of people are thinking about you let alone the fact that they don't even think that about you they're just angry in the moment and it basing off a projection of who they think you are and who they think you are is five percent of who you show online which is very curated so it's all very oh we're just arguing and disagreeing with these fictional versions of each other um, but when it comes to how I've managed to still be a very normal, well-rounded person after being through weird, like, internet things, um, is physical boundaries with my phone. And um, I don't sleep with my phone in the same room at night. I don't allow myself to have it first thing in the morning. I don't allow myself to have it in my bedroom because my phone is also work. So it kind of feels like an intruder in my bedroom so I don't have it in my bedroom physically that's a good boundary to have with it also practice the art of critical thinking um so it, the internet can um encourage you to view things in black and white but life is in the 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 gray the nuance so I think practicing critical thinking um not believing everything you read there have been so many cases where I've read things about people online and I've gone god that's awful how could they do that and then um even like recently in, in the press that I've been doing, I've said something in an interview and then they've taken the quote out of context. And I've read the article and I've gone, God, that's awful. That's like, that's not even what I've said. And I'm like, oh my God, I bet this has happened to so many people. And I almost want to backtrack every opinion I've formed of someone based on an article about them. Um, so practice critical thinking and uh, practice leaning into um, nuance. I like it. Okay, it's been lovely talking to you, Florence. Thank well you done so on much. Girl Crush Thank you. and on all the things, the amazing things that you're going to do. I'm really intrigued by the fashion. That's going to be good, I think. Yeah. And I'm sure very inclusive because that's what you're all about. And as someone who's a bigger size than maybe average people, I really appreciate that. Nice some nice seventies gear that would. Uh, Absolutely, that, that that's my only my only way to do things, and I'll never be able to compromise on that for myself. Excellent. Well, it's lovely talking to you, as I said, and uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank All the best. You. That's it from me for now. Thank you so much to Florence Given, and her book is called girl crush and it's available in all your best bookshops the podcast is produced by me roisin ingle and by suzanne brennan with jj vernon on sound get in touch with us on social at it women's podcast we're on twitter and instagram or email us the women's podcast at irishtimes.com mind yourselves and I'll- even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Talk to you next time. <laughs>